Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come into this world to show us the difference between light and darkness. And we bless you that you have come also to restore to us the truth about what life is meant to be on this planet. As part of the creation of God the Father and how we fit into that and what it means uh, for you to have been victorious on the cross against Satan and the powers of darkness. And so we just ask you to open our eyes and open our hearts and open our ears to the truth of your gospel as we consider some really difficult uh, and not intuitively obvious truths. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm sitting here at my computer um, re-recording the talk that I gave on Sunday. It was given with a a slide uh, presentation, but that hasn't come out and the recording didn't come out. And because this is an important topic, I want to at least try and communicate some of the content of what we were talking about. We are tackling the topic uh, this Sunday of spiritual warfare and what that means and why it's important. Maybe we can start off with an image of trying to understand what it looks like to tell a fish swimming up the inlet in Alberni uh, what it might be to consider that there's a world out there that's not wet, that there's a world out there where people don't exist in water, that people don't uh, need to stay underwater to survive. And then try and imagine convincing a fish that there are people out beyond their world who place something called a hook in their food And when they dangle that in the water and when they eat it, they will get actually killed. It's a paradigm shift that a fish would never be able to make considering a world outside of its own dominion and also considering the fact that other people are trying to uh, catch it, snare it and capture it uh, is beyond their comprehension. And I think in some ways this whole discussion of spiritual warfare is not intuitively obvious for us. It's a very difficult concept for us to grasp because we're so wed to the world in which we live. So we're going to try and just give some clues to what this might be. In the beginning, God created the world. And in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and God created a world where everything was in harmony with him. He gave one rule and that was that you should not eat, Adam and Eve should not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil in order to exercise free will. And I've qualified my talk by saying that everything I say, uh, could we could spend a week uh, uh, building up an argument for every statement I'm making. So I'm wanting to give today an overview of spiritual warfare that we're going to fill out over the next weeks and months. But in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, He created them to have a relationship with Him. And He blessed Adam and Eve, and He gave them authority over the world and all the plants and animals in it. Genesis 1, 28-30. And he's, He basically said, you have dominion over this. However, as we know, Satan, in the form of a snake, comes into the garden and tempts Adam and Eve and says to them basically, as he always does, God doesn't mean what he says. He doesn't mean that death will happen if you disobey him. He's basically jealous of you and he's threatened by you. 
So Satan is able to undermine God's word and God's authority and gets Adam and Eve to eat the fruit that they're forbidden. Of course, as soon as they eat of that fruit, they experience a conscience, and when they experience that conscience, they experience separation from God and they hide. And that's the first question that's actually asked in the, in the New Testament. Where are you, says God? And he's not asking that question because he doesn't know. He's asking that question because Adam and Eve have hidden themselves from him. And when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, what they did by default was give authority to Satan over this world in which we live. And that is evidenced when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan just before he began his public ministry in Luke 4, 5, to 6, 5 and 6. Luke 4 verses 5 and 6, he says, I will give you all the authority and splendor of the kingdoms of this world which has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. And Jesus did not challenge Satan because this world had become by default uh, his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the prince of darkness. And so we have in this world a place that is, in one sense, God's creation, hijacked, sabotaged, polluted by Satan. And the earth became under the rule of Satan and a place where evil or rebellion uh, was the norm against God. As Ephesians 2 one, uh, verses 1 and 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And what Paul was really saying is that as we are born into this world, we are born into a world that is by default separated from God. So we don't intuitively know about God. We have a sense of that. And we could talk about how every tribe in the universe uh, really has created some way of worshipping something bigger than itself. Every tribe tends to have some awareness of a spirit world. In fact, the West is probably the most ignorant of the spirit world because we've been buffered through our economic success or our, our materialism. But the reality was that after Eden and after the fall of Adam and Eve and after the uh, sabotage of God's creation by evil and the presence of evil, everything and everyone created by God was under attack. Now, let's make clear that Satan is not on an equal footing with God. Satan is a fallen angel Satan is somebody who was in rebellion to God and took a whole a bunch of other angelic beings with him. Keep in mind all the time, uh, explaining to a fish that there's another world outside the, that fish's domain because some of these references, some of these concepts sometimes can boggle our minds and we go, how can that possibly be? Another way of looking at it is to uh, consider the scientific world, consider the universe in which we live, the planets, the stars, and we can see how easily we can lose sight of understanding much of what is around us because our, our experiences and our comprehension is so finite, it's so limited. You can go into the micro, microscopic world and you end up with the same uh, problem of trying to comprehend just how many worlds there are within worlds, within our culture and within our, within our scientific uh, domain. So we're basically just setting a groundwork for saying that the world in which we live is a place that is in rebellion to God, is a place that is not as God created to be. 
And therefore those who are born into this world are born into a place of imprisonment or slavery and that has been regarded as normal for centuries and centuries and centuries. So Eden becomes a legend and heaven may be a place to go to after death but there's no intuitive response to a living God uh, that we can take hold of by merely living in this world without any references beyond ourselves. You'll have to forgive some of the obscurity of this because it's meant to have uh, slides to, to give you a clearer picture. What God did was that he loved this world and loved the people in the world with a great passion. And so as we know in the Old Testament accounts, when his people were slaves in Egypt, Egypt becomes a metaphor for this world that has got uh, separated from him. Egypt becomes a metaphor for slavery and Pharaoh becomes the equivalent of Satan. And the people of God had become enslaved to Pharaoh for 400 years, 450 years, so many, many generations had known nothing else but subservience. And I remember when I was in South Africa and growing up as a child, we had servants in the home. It was just one of the things that seemed to be normal at the time. And when I was married, and we had uh, somebody who came and cleaned the house. They came in and we asked them to stay, to sit down at the table for dinner, for, for lunch. And, and, and the woman could not do that. She had been part of a subservient culture for so long that she could not break away from the inferiority that she felt, much to our uh, regret. And I think uh, one of the things we're talking about in this whole area of spiritual warfare is that we do not easily move into freedom and we'll see that in a minute. We are people who are used to and comfortable in our slavery and it's it's something that we uh, can see if you counsel abused people or people who have been through trauma like a war or something like that. They don't merely come out of that place of violence or that place of abuse and fit right back into the normal world. They need to be counseled, they need to be in a sense deprogrammed and begin to believe that the circumstances in which they had been victims is not normal. Now in the world scene, that is where we are with Satan, with the, the reality of evil that oppresses all humanity. And what God did, and this is a picture to try and help us understand this, is that when he saw his people in slavery, uh, you remember he spoke to Moses through the burning bush and he said, I want you to go into Egypt and set my people free from slavery. And so Moses goes as a stuttering old man empowered by God to confront Pharaoh who is Satan. And after seven plagues, and uh, we don't have time to go into all of that, eventually uh, the, the promise is made that if the people of Israel uh, paint the door frames of their houses with the blood of the lamb, a sacrificed lamb, when the angel of death passed over, they would be saved. And that is what happened. And the next morning, the families with blood over the door frames find themselves in the same Egypt, the same Pharaoh ruling, the same street, the same accommodation, but they are free. And then they get from God the instruction, now walk out of this slavery into freedom. And they, they walk out, they come to the Red Sea, they cross the Red Sea, and they find themselves in a place where they don't really understand how to live in freedom. They come to the, the, the River Jordan and they look across at the Promised Land 
and they're expecting maybe the equivalent of Club Med, which is sometimes what we feel. Uh, there's a, an erroneous claim that when you know you you hear televi- television evangelists possibly say, "Ask Jesus into your life, and uh, everything will be fine." Well, that is not true at all. It's it's a question of Jesus saying to us, "Follow me, and you will know the power and the presence of God in the midst of this life." So these slaves out of Egypt who are now newly freed following Moses, they come to the border of the promised land within 30 days of being set free and they send scouts out to look at this land and they find to their horror that the land is occupied. There are all kinds of enemy people living in that land. And the journey out of captivity into freedom isn't what they anticipated. Ten of the scouts came back and said, All we see are people who are much bigger than us. They're giants and we feel like grasshoppers. Two of the people who went and looked at that land came back, only two, and said, you know, we believe God is truthful, God is honest, God is uh, going to, to protect us. And we see this land that's flowing with milk and honey and let's walk in and let's, let's take it. But fear overcame uh, the faith. And so instead of going into the promised land and taking it step by step as God instructed them to do, he said, I won't give this to you all at once. I'm going to basically lead you and teach you how to live in freedom. Um, I'm going to take it, give it to you step by step. Instead of doing that, they basically um, were afraid and gave, uh, uh, gave their fear more substance and faith in God. And they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. Instead of, and that was the only freedom they had, was wandering in the desert. And which is, I think, very often what we end up doing. We end up saying yes to God and then we don't carry on following Him. And we expect it all to be handed to us rather than we have to walk into this freedom. So we actually find that uh, what God was doing was really saying, you know, the promised land is a mirror image of Egypt. In other words, uh, the world is a place that is like a prison camp. And you were slaves in Egypt. Now I want you to learn how to be free. And we're going to come to that in a minute. What God did after that uh, to, you know, to, to cut through a lot of history was... Uh, he, he sent his son, Jesus, into this world, into this prison camp to demonstrate what it is like for a human being to live in the midst of the kingdom of darkness, which is this world, and actually live free. So Jesus was born, he lived in Nazareth, he grew up, and he, he demonstrated a power and a life that nobody had ever seen before. And it was fascinating to those who met him, he basically uh, undid the work of evil. He reminded people and said, you know, this world in which you live and this world which you see right now is not what it was meant to be, is not what God created, God my Father created. He, he created you to be in a personal relationship with Him and I'm demonstrating to you what an authentic human being looks like. They'd never seen it before. And that's why the New Testament talks about Jesus was the light of the world. He was the bread of life. He was where he went. The kingdom of God was, the rule of God was manifest. And when God's rule was manifest, people were healed. People were set free from blindness. The lame walked. The deaf heard. Why was that? It was because where God is present, 
He brings healing and he brings life. Where evil is present, it brings slavery and bondage and blindness and lameness and sickness. It is destructive. You see, Satan is not equal to God, as we said earlier. So, instead of, he can't attack God, so he attacks God's creation. So, where do we go from there? We go to the place where Jesus really, as the Bible talks about, is the second Adam. He's, he, he is Adam before Adam uh, ate the fruit. He's Adam as God created him to be. And he came into this world as God's son to undo the work of Satan and bring new hope and reconciliation to God's imprisoned people. Jesus said in John 7, 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that to, I testify to that uh, what it does is evil. And the irony is that generational prisoners feel safer with what they know than with the prospect of freedom. Uh, and that's very classic. Most people who have worked with people who have been abused know that uh, the hardest thing for people to begin to believe is they no longer need to be victim. They need, no longer need to be in fear of their lives. They no need, longer need to be um, enslaved to circumstances and feelings. And we, all of us who live in this world, uh, on a, are on a journey of learning what it means to be authentically human. And the Christian gospel is basically saying that Jesus uh, is the only authentic human being that has ever lived because he lives without the uh, shackles and chains of darkness and the effects and impact of Satan and rebellion. And that's why he said uh, to his disciples, he said, follow me. He said, come and I will show you life that you've never had before. And people were fascinated by this and people throughout generations of history have found that, that meeting with Jesus opens them up to something deep within themselves that they've always yearned for but not understood. Because in every human being there is, as the cliche says, a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. So even as slaves there's a memory of authenticity of something more that only Jesus fills and makes real. And so that's why Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the whole Christian gospel is about living in a prison camp as people who are set free because they're serving a different master. Now Satan is, is a master of bluff and a master of deceit. And so he continues to say, God doesn't mean it, God is not real, you are here, this is all there is in the world. And would attempt to make us all understand that there is nothing more to life than what we have here. And if you look and, and consider this world as a, as a large prison camp, there are places of real impoverishment and political um, destitution. And there are people who are suffering enormously. And there are others like in North America, where the prison camp, we, we live in the luxurious part of the prison camp. And so for many people, life is about gathering material possessions, making money, having success to make your life in this prison as, as comfortable as possible. Of course, when we're all lined up naked and dead in a coffin, nobody can be distinguished who's rich and who's poor. It's all about what you've invested in something more than just materialism that's going to count. 
And when Jesus said, unless you're born again, he's really saying, born again means beginning to look at life, taking into consideration the love of God, the presence of God, and he will actually reframe the whole meaning of life on this planet. When the disciples followed Jesus, you remember uh, Peter said, oh, he will never deny Jesus, and he was very puffed up about his ability to be true to Jesus. And Jesus responded and said, Simon Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now what does that tell us? That tells us that God is allowing Satan to uh, do his work but within parameters because philosophically it's a long discussion but it might be that the only way God can allow us and give us a taste of real freedom is to allow us to experience the whole gamut of emotions and experiences relating to darkness and light and to make choices and free will that goes along with them. So the expression of freedom that we have is to make choices and Jesus says that uh, he will use Satan or allow Satan to test us but there will be parameters on what he's allowed to do and so as we know Simon Peter uh, betrays Jesus and eventually he does get reconciled and forgiven now Jesus when he went to the cross uh, displayed his power over evil because the worst thing evil can do on this planet is to give uh, is, to, is to kill and when Jesus went to the cross and was resurrected he demonstrated as it says in Colossians having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross Colossians 